Hey guys, what's going on? This is Mike Estefan from the University of Rochester School of Medicine, bringing you episode 11 in the Emergency Medicine Shelf Exam Review Series. In this week's episode, we're going to be covering a couple topics from OB-GYN that will be high yield for your shelf exam. Now, just a disclaimer, this is not meant to be an end-all be-all resource for OB-GYN, okay? This is meant to help you guys score a couple more points on your shelf exam. With that being said, let's get started by talking about how I generally approach these questions. For any question involving a premenopausal woman, you must start out with your ABCPs. A for airway, B for breathing, C for circulation, and P for pregnancy test. Every premenopausal woman needs a pregnancy test. Even if they're not presenting with an abdominal or a pelvic complaint, they still need a pregnancy test. This is because, obviously, it'll affect what type of imaging you can order and which type of medications you can give. So if the vignette gives you a premenopausal female and does not give you the result of a urine pregnancy test, boom, you're done. The answer is urine pregnancy test. That is, assuming her ABCs are fine. Now, the biggest topic for this shelf exam in the realm of OB-GYN is going to be vaginal bleeding. You can break this up into three separate categories. Non-pregnant vaginal bleeding, pregnant vaginal bleeding, and postpartum vaginal bleeding. Let's start with non-pregnant vaginal bleeding. This is by far the least likely of the three types of vaginal bleeding that you will see on your exam. Now, when it comes down to the questions they'll ask you about this on your exam, they're not going to ask you to distinguish between one cause from another cause or anything like that. They want you to know how to start the workup for non-pregnant vaginal bleeding. To start the workup for a structural cause of non-pregnant vaginal bleeding, you would order a pelvic ultrasound. And in my experience, that's probably going to be the correct answer for your exam. Perhaps equally as important to that pelvic ultrasound is looking at other non-structural causes for non-pregnant vaginal bleeding. Generally, you can do this on your exam with a CBC and a coagulation panel, like a PTINR. You want to make sure that this patient doesn't have some kind of crazy coagulopathy, and you also want to make sure that they're not anemic. Again, I realize I'm being extremely superficial here, but the exam is not going to go into much detail on this. They just want you to know how to start the workup. Now, let's talk about pregnant vaginal bleeding. One of the most high-yield things that you can know about pregnant vaginal bleeding for your exam is that you need to order a type and screen on these patients. You do this in order to determine the patient's RH status. If the patient is RH negative from that type and screen that you ordered, then they need prophylactic Rogam. Now, if the patient is hemodynamically unstable, instead of a type and screen, you get a type and cross, and also you start giving this patient O negative blood. Now, if the exam isn't testing you on this fact, then they're probably leading towards an ectopic pregnancy question. I already covered ectopic pregnancy in episode 8, so I'm not going to repeat that content again here. Instead, I'm going to talk about the causes of pregnant vaginal bleeding that are less likely to show up on your exam when compared to ectopic. If the patient presents with vaginal bleeding and they also happen to be peritonitic, and obviously something really bad is happening. 
If the woman is early in her pregnancy, then this is likely to be a ruptured ectopic. If the woman is far along in her pregnancy, then this could be a uterine rupture. Either way, both of these cases require the patient to go to the OR after they are stabilized. If the patient presents with vaginal bleeding and there was a history of recent trauma or of recent drug use, such as cocaine, then you should suspect placental abruption. My last pearl for this topic is that if the vignette tells you that the patient is giving birth in the ED and the patient is less than 32 weeks along in their pregnancy, you must give the patient magnesium to protect the baby. Moving on, when it comes to postpartum bleeding, the exam typically isn't going to go into much detail here either. The meat of the exam for OB-GYN is going to be pregnant vaginal bleeding. The most common cause of postpartum vaginal bleeding for your emergency medicine shelf exam is going to be a retained product of conception. These patients will need a pelvic ultrasound to identify the retained product, followed by a DNC to remove the retained product. Now, if the patient presents with severe abdominal pain and a fever in addition to postpartum vaginal bleeding, that is when you think of endometritis. Endometritis, when you break it down into its roots, literally means inflammation of the endometrium. This is typically caused by an infection, and because of that, these patients need antibiotics. Does anyone remember from their OB-GYN rotation which antibiotics you want to use here? Good. The answer is clindamycin and gentamicin. All right, let's move on from vaginal bleeding, and I'm going to do that by giving you guys a vignette. Let's say we have a 20-year-old female, and she's presenting with the sudden onset of right-sided lower abdominal pain associated with nausea. This pain subsided once she got to the ED, but as you were getting ready to discharge her, the pain came back in full force again, and she actually threw up on the floor in front of you. What do you need to make sure is not going on? Besides like an appendicitis, but that wouldn't go away. Good. So you need to rule out ovarian torsion. And also, if these symptoms present it in a male, you need to rule out testicular torsion. What trips up a lot of people is the fact that this pain can come and go, but it doesn't have to. It can be constant. This is a pretty frustrating diagnosis to make in real life because there isn't really a good way to rule out ovarian torsion. Now, obviously, the test you order is a Doppler ultrasound of the pelvis to look at the ovarian vessels. However, in real life, a negative ultrasound does not rule out the presence of ovarian torsion because it could have just spontaneously detorsed and an hour later the patient could be back. So this becomes a real headache in real life. But all you need to know for the exam is to get a Doppler ultrasound of the pelvis. Now, let's say the patient comes in with vaginal discharge, and on exam, they have cervical motion tenderness. What do you think the most likely diagnosis here is? Good, so this is probably gonna be PID, or pelvic inflammatory disease. You should especially suspect this if there's a history of drug use, or a history of multiple sexual partners, or a history of not using protection. More often than not, this is a mixed microbial infection, and so gentamicin plus clindamycin typically works for coverage. 
These patients, however, should be tested for gonorrhea and chlamydia. And to end this episode, we're going to talk about the more benign causes of vaginal discharge. These are the kinds of topics that are more likely to show up on your family med shelf exam. However, they're totally fair game for the EM shelf exam, so I would be familiar. I'm going to go through these pretty quickly because this is probably the fifth time you're learning about this now. Let's say a patient comes in and is presenting with vaginal discharge. She describes it as a thin, gray kind of discharge, and it has a fishy odor. What do you think the most likely diagnosis is? Good. This is BV, or bacterial vaginosis. And who remembers how to diagnose BV? Good. You do saline microscopy, and you look for the presence of clue cells. And anyone remember the treatment for BB? Good, it's metronidazole. And what do you tell your patients before you give them metronidazole? Don't drink alcohol. Unless you enjoy the feeling of being hungover, which I sure don't. All right, let's say the same patient comes in, but instead she describes the discharge as a thick cottage cheese-like discharge. What's your diagnosis now? Good. This is candidal vaginitis caused by C. albicans. And how do we diagnose this one? Good. This is a KOH prep where you look for budding yeasts and pseudohyphae under the microscope. And the treatment for this one? Fluconazole. Good. This is a fungal infection. All right, last one. Patient comes in and describes their vaginal discharge as a thin, yellow-slash-green, frothy-like discharge. What do you think the diagnosis here is? Good. So this is going to be trichomonal vaginitis. And how do you diagnose this? So you do saline microscopy, and what you're looking for is the presence of organisms that are moving and have flagella. And do you know the treatment for trichomonas? This one's a little tricky, and the exam will expect you to know this. You treat with metronidazole for both the patient and their sexual partner. And that's about all the content I have for you guys right now. Now, with that being said, I want to make this very clear for you guys. It doesn't matter if you're listening to this episode now, a week after it's recorded, or two years after it's recorded, I still want to hear your feedback. Zach is totally cool with me doing more episodes in the future if the demand is there for it. So please reach out with any suggestions or comments, feedback, anything that you might have. My email is empodcastmike at gmail.com. Until next time, guys, keep working hard, keep studying, and be sure to enjoy your shift.